so it, it is in that tone, Lord, we come to you and call you Father. Ask you to help in our time of need. Ask you to grant us indeed the hope of Christ. The knowledge that surpasses all other things. I pray, Father, that our hearts would respond in great joy and thankfulness even in this day for the good gifts that you have given to us, gifts we certainly don't deserve, but all good and great gifts come from your hand. And so we've gathered together to praise your holy name for it. I pray that the Holy Spirit indeed would illuminate and enlighten our hearts, bring to faith those that are on the fence and don't really know Christ as Lord. May they confess him even this day. For those that are struggling with various things in their life, I pray, Father, that the, the struggle would be strengthened by your truth. Sanctify us in your truth. Give us great joy and delight in this day, the day you have made. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Let's take our hymn books and stand and turn to number 250. And can it be? But God proves his own, his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8, 250. We'll sing all four verses of And Can It Be. <clears throat> and can it be?
special presentation this morning and I invite Gail Allison to come on up to do that. One of the things that Gail has helped us with through the years is to help us with encouraging parents to teach their children the Bible. If you hide God's word in your heart, it will change everything in your life. And it's my prayer that these seeds that you have helped to facilitate, absolutely, with the parents, to the children, that they will be deeply rooted in their mind, that God would use these to bring about faith and faithfulness in the lives of his children. You also have helped encourage prayer for these children as, as well on a regular basis. Many of you know that Gail and Andy will be on mission in two weeks from now. We'll talk about that next week, but uh, we really appreciate what you have encouraged us to do and and me as well every year she sends me an email and says hey wayne here's the fighter verses for this next year can you print some of them out and make little bookmarks which you know all of that's none of that's my idea that's all gail's so uh, i just want to thank you for the years and years that you have encouraged us on that way and encouraged parents to to do this and uh, we will see the fruit of these planted seeds in due time, in God's season, and we'll see it, and they will see in Savior, and I, and I can't commend this program more. Tell us a little bit, if you will, about uh, what you're doing, and then how we're going to recognize someone today that has um, participated in this program, Gail. Thank you. Um, Psalm 1 tells us that the blessed person... Um, delights in uh, God's law and his uh, Bible, his uh, word, and meditates on it, thinks about it night and day. Well, we have a simple Bible memory program. Um, with It has some incentives, and I have a little brochure about it. I'll put this on the back railing. To encourage our children, we have verse records. You might see some of these on the classrooms downstairs, on their walls, and you can take them home. Um, you can take, I'll put some of these in the back um, railing too. You can take home for each child, and as they learn a Bible verse, you record it. And um, if they can say it to you or say it to a teacher, uh, we can put it on their record and then for the first five verses that they memorize they get a bible verse tote bag you see some of those around and then for every five verses after that they earn a star button to either glue or sew on their bag some do that some some don't but this is an opportunity um, and uh, this is for any child in our church, and it's for any Bible verses that you learn. Um, so I would like to ask Lauren Taylor to come up. Congratulate you, Lauren, for the hard work that you've done in, in 
it's just uh, for hiding God's word in your heart uh, for, for the Lord. Um, so I want to present to you um, this Bible tote bag and eight stars to put on it. Do you want to say one of your Bible verses today? Right, I forgot about that. <laughs> okay. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, the God of the Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 664. Pastor mentioned some lines last week from his sermon from this hymn, so we thought we'd reinforce it by singing it this morning. It's God moves in a mysterious way. Romans 11:33. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. 
cast away all fears. 291 in our inserts here. We'll sing, uh, we want to play it once for us, and, you know, Amber, and then we'll... Uh, morning we'll be reading from Psalm 49. Psalm 49 can be found in your pew Bibles on page 472. As an introduction I'd like to read from John MacArthur's comments on the psalm in his study Bible. Psalm 49 deals with the most real thing about life the certainty of death. One of its major lessons is that you really can't take it with you. Containing these kinds of very practical lessons about life and death, it falls neatly into the category of didactic, that means morally instructive for the children among us, or wisdom poems. 
At times, it sounds very much like portions of Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. It contains warnings to the rich and famous and words of comfort for the poor. These timeless Old Testament messages undergird many New Testament passages, such as the accounts about the rich fool in Luke 12, 13 to 21, or the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. After a fairly lengthy introduction, the body of the psalm falls into two parts as indicated by the climaxing refrain in verses 12 and 20. The wisdom poet of Psalm 49 developed his somber theme in two stages, focusing on death as the universal experience of all men. The introduction is verses 1 to 4, stage 1, the common experience of death, verses 5 to 12, and stage 2, the contrasting experience in death, verses 16 to 20. Let us pay careful attention then to the reading of God's holy and infallible word. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain, he is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we pray for more of that grace, for more of that faith to overcome all fears, doubts, and misgivings. If only you would show us, dear Lord, day by day, that the nearer we draw to the time of each of our deaths, the closer we may cling to your embraces and the more we may hang our souls upon you. O oh, Father, grant us the grace to crucify those sins which nailed Jesus to the cursed tree. O oh, for grace to take up the cross and follow Jesus day by day. Lord Jesus, give me, 
grace, give each of us grace to go forth to you. Father, may a full tide of your grace be poured in upon our souls when the time comes to each of us to set our house in order, since you were pleased to awaken us to a knowledge of you and a desire for you. In the end, may we finally, fully, and completely, once for all, cast our souls into the blessed arms of Jesus, as each of us say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Until then, let each of us continually glow and burn out for you. We thank you for the opportunity to hear your word preached and worship you freely, and we pray that you would draw near to us in these things. We thank you for your having spared our lives during this pandemic and pray that you would continue to do so, but that you would use it to bring many to repentance and faith in your son, Christ Jesus, before bringing it to an end. Hear us then, for the sake of your son, Christ Jesus, through whom we pray, amen. Let's take our hymn books one more time and stand and turn to number 169. For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son, John 3:16. What wondrous love is this? 169 was in the first, third, and fourth verses of 
Lake Amber and Church. And indeed, I hope that is your prayer that you will look forward to a day in which you indeed will sing on. We're finishing up our selection here from John. John chapter 16 invites you to turn. We've been through this section 14 through 16 in which Jesus gives instructions to his disciples on the eve before his death on the cross. It is to them specifically that he gives these instructions and it's applicable to us. He needs to prepare them for what lays ahead. We know, but they don't know. And so, and we don't know what lies ahead for us either. But Christ would have his church to have peace in the midst of whatever is to transpire. Last week, we looked at this solid ground of joy, a deep-seated joy not based on the circumstances that they would find themselves in because Jesus told them they would sorrow. They would have sorrow. But he called them to joy. Here he calls them to, to peace in similar fashion. Notice verse 33 in our text, John 16, 33. He says, I've said these things, kind of wrapping up what he's saying. I've said these things so that ultimately you will do what? You will have peace. And then he acknowledges that in the world, you're going to have tribulation. This is compared and contrasted, if you will. Tribulation contrasted with peace, just as he contrasted sorrow with joy. He acknowledged you're going to have sorrow, but this is the way he's calling his disciples to live in the midst of sorrow. Look to him for joy in the circumstance of great tribulation. Look to him and find peace. This is critical for your spiritual well-being. To understand this experiences of this life and what you're, what is going to be ahead of you as it was for them, Christ has given to every believer joy. Christ has given to every believer peace. Now, you may not feel like you have the gift of joy. <laughs> It may not feel like you have the gift of peace, but here Christ has indeed promised that very thing. Yes, you will have sorrow, and yes, you will have tribulation, but in the midst of this, you in Christ, you can have great joy and great peace. Ratio Spafford wrote a song that we sing from time to time. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It's really a reflection of the joy and the peace, ultimately, that Christ gives. In the verse, it goes on to say, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ, yes, he has. He has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. That is how you can have peace 
and know it is indeed, it is well. It is well, not in the circumstances, but indeed in your soul. These concept of joy and peace, this is integral with Christianity. Let's look at our text as Jesus describes this, and we'll focus on peace now, beginning in verse 25, and then deduce some keys that might help us to be reminded of the peace of Christ that has been given Not just to these disciples, but to all who would follow Christ. Picking up in verse 25 in chapter 16, Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. (coughs) The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name and I don't say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father's with me. I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Let us pray. Father, indeed, I pray for myself and your people that indeed we would have a peace that, that surpasses all understanding, a peace that is not tied to the day that which we live and perhaps even the days that we'll face ahead, tribulation that certainly will be part of our life, I pray, Father, that we will find our peace in Christ the Lord. Grant your spirit to speak to each one in the way we would need to hear from you. For those that are not reconciled to you, I pray that you would grant them life in Christ now that they indeed might have peace with God. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Notice our text here in verse 33, the key. It is in Christ, in me, he says, that you're going to have peace. The word peace here, as we would understand it as well, simply means harmony, if you will. Uh, When it comes to relationships, it's Freedom from disputes implied that way. It's notably thought of in the absence of war, which, by the way, I'm reminded I grew up in Washington, D.C. I was actually born in D.C. at Sibley Hospital, same hospital my father was born at. After I was born, they tore it down, so we don't have that problem anymore. That's why I moved. But anyway... 
one of the, I did get an opportunity a couple years ago to bring my children back up there and show them around D.C. and see all the monuments, and many of you have seen that if you haven't. They call a lot of these monuments that they have around there peace monuments. And somebody asked one time why they have so many of them, and there are many peace monuments, and they said, well, it's simple. They just erect one after they have a war. (laughs) You're not going to find your peace in a governmental institution. They may make some sort of peace promise and a pact and even set up a monument. But before you know it, those treaties are broken and a war will break out once again. Christ promises peace. Promises a state of blessedness, if you will, regardless of the circumstances. There isn't going to be an absence of war in our world in which we live. There isn't going to be an absence of conflict among people. Tribulation as it's described here. But the point is for those that are in Christ, you're going to have an absence of the mental stress, if you will. The anxiety that results from those circumstances recognizing the peace that you have from God in Christ our Lord. If you remember this um, exposition that Christ gives to his disciples here, really beginning in chapter 14, these are key concepts he wants his disciples to know, to prepare them for what's ahead and for those who would follow in their steps. He kind of began that way, if you remember, if you can turn back just a couple chapters, verse 27. He emphasizes the idea of peace, and remember how he went through his teaching. He kind of circled around some of these thoughts again and again and said it just slightly differently. Here he's closing out this Instruction to his disciples, really the way he began, verse 27 of chapter 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. This is why I would argue that the peace we're talking about is a very gift of Christ to his disciples, to his church. Peace I leave, peace I give. And then he explains, not as the world gives do I give unto you. It's about an internal thing. Let not your, what, hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is great peace. This is peace that allows those that are in Christ to have their fears dissolved, if you will. Because they have the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding, Philippians chapter 4. They have a peace of Christ which really governs their mindset in their life. That's the idea of allowing the peace of Christ to rule or to reign in your heart, that is in your mind, Colossians chapter 3. But ultimately, too, this idea of peace that he's given them also pairs up with this idea of the messianic kingdom. That is, the conquering of Christ. The very peace 
of the gospel, the gospel of peace which reconciles sinners to God, a peace which we look forward to in which Christ's kingdom will reign forever and ever and ever. And all of the conflicts, all of the tribulation, all of the difficulty will be resolved in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a peace that has been given. It is a peace that you actually have. And to become more aware of that peace in your life, I want to encourage you just deduce from the text as I've read it out, and I'll show you there, of how you can find that peace, how you can bring it up into your recollection on the back of your worship folder. By the way, I'm getting a little bit of feedback on my mic. I'm not sure how it sounds back there, but in any case... Um, I can hear myself breathing, and that's not good. Uh, if you look on the back of your worship folder, I wrote this little equation for you. And the only reason I did this is to help perhaps you to have uh, hooks, if you will, to hang some of this idea on. Christ has given you peace, you have it. So how are you going to bring it back to your mind in times of great difficulty and tribulation? How will these disciples do that and how will you? Well, know the equation, if you will, of peace. Christ has promised it. And what's, what is it composed of? I'd argue primarily love plus faith plus hope. Not necessarily in that order, but those are key components of it. Love, faith, and hope are the equation to peace. Now, if you're thinking about that, maybe a passage of Scripture that you have hidden in your heart comes up to your memory. Chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, we call it the love chapter. You know, it's wedged right between the explanation of the spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and then chapter 14, an explanation of how those gifts are to be used in the church. And, but right here in the middle is chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, and it's the love chapter because all things are to be done in love, and that quality is emphasized. Paul there it concludes in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, he said, now abides what? Faith, hope, and love. These three, and then he says the greatest of these is love. What he's saying is these are very essential concepts in the Christian life. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, his emphasis there is to say these are really important, but overall, love is the most enduring. You know why? They're all important. You need them right now. Hope will be realized in the eternal state, right? All that you hope for will be actually fulfilled and realized. So it will cease in that sense because it will be realized. Faith as, as, as well will be realized. You, you trust and you have the faith and the promises of God, but when they're completed and you're in the eternal state, that will be done. But love continues. It continues for the eternal state. In the world in which we live today, these three elements are essential for you to be reminded of the peace of God in Christ Jesus. Peace even in the midst of awful circumstances that you may face. 
You'll have peace because of the personal love of God for you if you're in Christ. You have peace because you have genuine faith, not in circumstances that may or may not work out, but in a particular person, and that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have peace in the midst of tribulation because of the hope that would be, as I'll describe, the certainty that is in Christ our Lord. Now let's look at each one here, these elements of peace as I put it together, or the equation of peace in your mind, the peace that Christ has given. One aspect is, is, is love. And let's look at our text in verse 25. He says, as he begins this section, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. And we touched on that last week. A figure of speech is, the way to think about it would be a veiled statement, if you will. He's going to unveil that statement He was speaking in figures. In other words, if you read a lot of what was recorded about Christ's teaching, um, there's some aspects that are veiled, and if he doesn't explain the illustration, well, you don't really know what it is. But there will come a time in which he's no longer going to speak to you in figures of speech, but he says he'll tell you plainly about the Father. I'd argue that that time... Is, they're, they're thinking it's, it's right then immediately. Well, it is to some degree, but there are some aspects of this they, they don't uh, fully know, they don't fully get. If, if you remember even um, in John, I think it was 21, where Jesus talked about Peter and his, and his martyrdom, and, uh, and, and they were confused about all of that. Now, I think it is his, his pointing here about the time in which it'll be fully revealed. That hour, plainly, it'll come after his departure and the sending of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's the Holy Spirit's job then to guide his disciples in all truth. He will provide additional information through inspired scripture mysteries as Paul talks about them, previously unrevealed truth that Paul will be inspired by the Holy Spirit to actually write down. And then the second aspect would be for those believers who read that apostolic word post-Christ, Christ has gone on to heaven, right? Holy Spirit has given that and then he illuminate their hearts, not so that they will gain words that aren't recorded in the text, but they'll actually understand the significance of what is here. You see, Paul will explain that the natural man doesn't receive the things of God. And neither can he. Why not? Because these things are what? Spiritually discerned. Ultimately, we don't stand in pride when we write down and technically have the the correct analysis of the text and all of that, in the end, how will you know it? It is because these things are spiritually discerned. 
And I assure you, as I go through my study, yeah, I can mechanically organize and create uh, various uh, types of um, teaching and, and so forth, but it is only through the Spirit of God when He affects my heart uh, that I can see the significance of this substance that is written down. The significance of the Holy Scriptures then, Scriptures that are inspired by the Spirit, then speak plainly and to know them, it'll come about through this dynamic work of the Holy Spirit who will reveal the very words of Christ to us. Back to our text in verse 26 of chapter 16, he says, and he's looking to a future day, a date that is ahead, in that day, you will ask in my name. You'll ask who? The Father, verse 25. You'll ask in my name. Now, and we've been through this, and most of you already know, this doesn't mean you're just going to add a coda to the end of your prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. I like to do that. If you don't, that's fine. It doesn't matter, right? I just do it traditionally, I like to do it. It causes me to think about why I can pray. It is in Jesus' name. But it's not a word that you would say. It is this idea that you are in concept that in that day, that is when he is gone and they're there, they're going to pray and they're going to pray in Christ Jesus' name. Here, more than anything, is to these particular... We're looking backwards, so we know information they don't. It, this statement here in verse did because... They Father. That wasn't how they dressed God away. And if you remember, the disciples saw Jesus pray. These are disciples who followed Christ, who grew up in Judaism, they understood how to pray, and what you can cry out and call directly to God because of your union with Christ. And I hope you understand what I'm saying. You don't pray to Jesus and ask him to put in a good word for you, if you will. You're in Christ. You go to the Father. If you had a child and that child needed you, they would go right to you, even if it upset various protocols of the day, because they have access, and a good father would accept them. That's the imagery there, direct access to God. You have peace with him, you can go directly to him. And by the way, this does away with any need for earthly priest or some sort of saint in the sky by which you need to go to God to. You understand that. You don't go to a priest and make your confession to a priest to get forgiveness of your sin. You cry out to God. And you have direct access because of the union you have with Christ. And if you need help in a time of need, you can go directly to him. The role, our role here, Rome is deficient on that understanding. They would have you call out to St. Peter. I don't know why if you read some of the stuff that he does, why anybody would. Or Mary for that matter. No, you don't do that. Cry out directly to Christ. 
The role of an elder within a church primarily is to hold fast to this truth, this very word of God, to do two things. One, to encourage those that are in Christ and then to rebuke those who go astray. That's it. To encourage and to rebuke. Back to our text, verse 27. He explains this then, why you can go directly to God. And this is how you have peace. Because of the love of the Father. Verse 27, this is what I'm saying. The Father himself loves you because you love me and have believed that I came from God. You see the connection that he's making there? You have a love for Jesus Christ. You're in union with him. And because of that union with Christ, then the Father himself, it said, reflexively back to the Father himself, he loves you. There are distinctions in God's love. It is true, and I would agree, that God, there is a sense in which God loves everyone. If he didn't, we'd all be dead. The entire world be gone. We call that God's common grace, or maybe you can think of it as common love for humanity. He doesn't treat us in the way we deserve. He's patient. He's kind. All of those descriptions of love in 1 Corinthians 13, that is who God is. It's demonstrated by even those that would shake their fist at him. In fact, even those that would nail Christ to the cross and king, the king of glory. But there is a general sense of his love, his provision, his continuation of the earth. But here, the specific is God himself loves you. He's identifying this group and a distinctive love that is not common to everyone. And the word here he uses for love is probably unexpected to most of you. Now, we've heard words for love in Greek. That's something that's commonly talked about, isn't it? Different words they have, we don't have. They have agape, and that's often described as the highest form of love, the sacrificial love of God. And then you have the word phileo, from which we get brotherly love, if you will. And oftentimes that's described as, well, kind of a family or lesser love, a brotherly love. Well, which one of those, if, if that were true, by the way, which one of those would you expect this word to be, phileo or agape, here in verse 27? It's phileo. You can't just look up the dictionary term and and put the meaning in the context. You need to see how it's being used. What's being used here and what's being emphasized, yes, God does agape, if you will, those that are his beloved, and it's said that way in other places. In other words, where the emphasis is much more on a, on a sacrificial love, a faithful love, a commitment type of love. 
But don't discount this other aspect of love. And that is to have true, intimate feelings. That's what that range of meaning is getting to. A family love. I love you guys here more than any other group that might gather because you are beloved. And I think a lot of you. And if something happened to one of you, I would feel, you know, very sad and hurt. It would affect me deeply. We have a relationship. There's the family of God in that sense. But if you draw the circle a little tighter, I have what we would call my immediate family, right? It's, it, it's those, my children that I have reared and my wife. There's an increased intimacy as that circle draws tighter. Can I tell you this? The idea of using phileo here with both our love for Christ and the Father's love for those of you who are in Christ is, is intended to express that kind of a relationship. I don't know what you think about your relationship with God. It is true that he loves you unconditionally, that he loves you in spite of who you are and what you've done, and that whatever you do will never measure up. He loves you sacrificially. But I hope you get what I'm saying here. God also likes you. Many people don't like me, and I understand that. <laughs> At times, I can be an unlikable person. But God likes his beloved. That's the sense of that. They're my family. Oh, yeah, they may not always do what I want them to do or act the way I want them to act or behave. And I cherish them. I'll sacrifice to them. I'll pay their bills. I'll take care of their, their needs. If they, if they need something, I'll do it for them. But I also cherish them. I like them a lot. Love is not just, of God is not just a faithful commitment. But those that are in Christ are said to be his family. This adds an intimate and personal aspect of this relationship of love. Now, I'm not attempting just to try to build up your self-esteem in and of yourself, although that is important. You need to consciously have some uh, value for others and certainly value for yourself. But what he's saying is the very God of the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, he cares more deeply personally for you. I don't fully understand that. I have some acquaintance with it because even in my sinful fallen mind, I I have deep affections and care for other people. And specifically, the ones that are even more, the closer they are to me, the more I actually have those affections. There is no greater affection that the father would have than for the son. 
And if you're in Christ, he has that affection for you. There could be great tribulation that comes along in the way. Everyone else could abandon you. Everyone else may not like you, but God does. And in that, you can have peace no matter what. Paul would tell the church at Corinth, who were, I mean, I'm sorry, at Thessalonica, they were about to panic because of all the craziness in their day. You think, we have craziness in our day? I know. It's just because it's our experience. But you know what? If you look at it historically, there have been craziness going along all since the fall of man. Okay? The church at Thessalonica was really concerned because they knew about the judgment that was surely coming, as indeed it has been demonstrated through the years, but they were showing the eschatological, the final destruction. And Paul will tell the church that God has not designed us and not destined us, should I say, for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he admonishes the church to, to build up one another. You know why he hadn't destined you to, to wrath? Because he likes you. <laughs> it's that kind of love. It is that love that will give you peace whether this culture absolutely falls apart, which it looks like it's going to do. He'll give you great peace in the midst of conflict between people, between countries, political ideologies. It is the very love of God in Christ Jesus. And you can be at peace, beloved, because you know the love of the Father. The second aspect in this equation is faith. And back to our text in verse 29. The love of the Father, know that. Personal, intimate, know faith in a person. Notice he says this, um, the disciples' response, and, and you've got to read this in the bigger picture. They don't quite get what Jesus is saying fully. Again, they're on that. Uh, we have more information than they do. We also have the Holy Spirit uniquely illuminating us. Christ has already ascended in our sense here, but they're before that, and so they can't quite get what Christ is saying, and they're saying, well, okay, well, now you're speaking plainly. But they make a good statement here. We know that, verse 30, that you know all things, and you don't need anyone to question you. <clears throat> That's why we believe. They affirm the truth concerning Jesus Christ. He knows all things, that is, he's omniscient. This is a statement that indicates they recognize that he is God, right? God is the only one that actually knows all things. That and your teenage son, but I digress. God knows all things. He'd have to know all things to be God, and they acknowledge that. They acknowledge that no one needs to question him because he is the standard of truth. Anything God says is true and therefore is the standard. So if I was 
reading some book on philosophy and, and, and the guy talked about his philosophy. It was an interesting thing. He said, what you need to do to be a philosopher is are skeptics. And if God says something directly to, the, to you, you should question it. Well, that's where he's wrong because <laughs> that's why philosophy, I mean, there's some value in it, but that's where they miss the mark because the center of it must be God. The center of truth is God. If you put your spokes on a wheel and you don't center it on the hub, everything's going to be off. I mean, it might look right, but it's going to wobble. And it's going to miss the mark to some degree. God is the center of truth. They recognize that. No one needs to question Christ because all that he speaks is true. He is the measure by which all questions are, find their answer and the resolution. They then express that they have faith. They, they believe. They trust him. And Jesus' answer is, is an interesting one. And some translators have a difficult time with it. Verse 31, he's, Jesus answers, do you now believe? So should it be, do you now believe? You know, uh, or do you now believe? You know, I mean, what is it? Do you believe it last, like the NIV states? I don't know. I think what's going on here is that Jesus is a, Jesus knows. This is what I can know from the context. Jesus knows that the, these disciples that he's speaking to, they have genuine faith. He's not questioning their faith. In other words, they're truly regenerate, right? He's already dismissed the unbeliever in their midst. He's already sent away Judas Iscariot. He's already separated the sheep from the goats, if you will. He knows. In fact, they've already said, he knows all things. So, whatever tone he has made with this statement, it's not for Jesus to figure out whether they believe or disbelieve. But he calls them to think about their own faith. And to ask themselves, is my faith genuine? It is that faith, that genuine faith in that person that is in Jesus Christ that will keep them in peace in the midst of the tribulation that they're going to find themselves in. It is a call to find their peace in faith in this person. Not in the circumstances, not in what might go on outside, but in that person, Jesus Christ. In fact, here I invite you to keep your finger there. We're going to turn to a couple texts. Let's um, turn to Luke 22. I just like the phraseology, the way Luke records this section, where Jesus challenges Peter, Luke twenty-two thirty-one, and he tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, he's trying to get his attention, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Okay. Satan wants to destroy him. But why isn't he destroyed? Verse 32, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You think Jesus' prayers get answered? Yeah. And let me tell you this. 
The only reason your faith isn't going to fail is because Jesus is interceding for you. He is praying for you. That's ultimately what matters. In fact, he even makes that statement, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Here is a statement about the fact that he, Jesus knows that he will repent. That's turn again means. In other words, he knows he's going to, to fall, but he knows he's going to stand up. He knows that he's going to sin, but he knows that he's going to repent. Peter, on his behalf, he's not looking at the person of Christ. He's looking at himself and his own strength. And he says, well, I'm ready to go to prison with you and to death. And you guys already know the rest of the story, don't you? What, Peter, what Jesus told him is true. Peter, the rooster won't crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. That's got to sink like an anvil on a skull. It is true. That does happen. But notice here, Jesus knows that his faith isn't going to fail, ultimately. Because he's praying for him. He's keeping him in the faith. In fact, he knows so much so that when he does deny the Lord, that he will return, and that returning is going to be a strengthening for the brothers. Why? Because he's going to tell them, quit relying on yourself and look to Christ. That's the point. The distinguishing difference here, then, someone with genuine faith and someone who doesn't have faith is repentance. That's the idea. He'll turn again. He'll continue to turn again. And beloved, it is that faith in that person of Christ that will draw you again and again to come to drink from this fountain that creates the difference and gives peace in the midst of even this sin. Receiving grace that is far greater than any sin. This is godly repentance, which leads, which is genuine conviction, which ultimately leads to what? Peace and restoration in the midst of this. Jesus has to remind Peter of that, and we'll get to that in chapter 21. You're familiar with that back and forth dialogue. This is after he has betrayed Christ. He has to restore him. And he calls him to remember that indeed he loves him. And because of that love, he comes in repentance, confession, and faith and belief. I just want to say this to you, one more statement, and you can turn there or not in 1 John 3, just to help someone if you're struggling with your faith. If your faith is weak, you're going to have difficulty with peace before God, peace in your own mind, peace in the circumstances that you're in. John will quite plainly in his epistle, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, explain 
the condition of those that believe, those that practice sin, practice lawlessness. Christ, of course, verse 5, appeared to take away our sin, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The devil has been sinning for the beginning. And of course, he will destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God practices sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And this is how this evidence of those that are children of God. Why? Because they don't ever sin in their life? No. We'd all be disqualified in this life. It's they don't abide in it. They don't continue in it. There is something on the inside that causes them to want to turn back to Christ. It would be like a person dropped in the middle of the river. If they're alive, they're going to turn to the shore and keep paddling until they have no more breath, right? Even if the currents are big, tumultuous, even if they go down two, three, four, five, six times. As long as they have breath, they'll keep moving. You put a dead man in the water and he's just going to float down the stream, right? That's the difference in those that have faith in Christ. There is life in there that causes them to want to go to Christ. And if you have a problem with habitual sin in your life, it's going to bring great grief to you, cause you to question your faith. But here's what I call, just like Jesus did with Peter, is, and ask you simply this question. Do you love Jesus Christ? Look to him. If you're struggling with sin in your life, look to Christ. Repent and return to him. Find him as your sure salvation. It's dangerous It's dangerous to be engulfed in the cesspool of sin. It'll make you smell bad. But if you're alive, look to Christ and live. Come to him in repentance and faith. You're going to have peace then, beloved, because of the faith that you have in Christ, the love of the Father, and finally, the hope that is yours. Look at verse 32, back to our text. Verse, it's chapter 16, verse 32. <clears throat> Christ is concluding this section, and he said, the hour is coming when you're going to be scattered. And we know that indeed happened. Christ is left alone, but of course he tells them, I'm not alone, the Father's with me. The disciples' world is about to be shattered Talk about tribulation. Oh, yeah, it's coming. That and martyrdom. Jesus has already told them, if you remember in chapter 15, that the world, the culture, the system, it really hates you. They may pretend and smile, but wait till something comes up. You'll find out that they actually really hate you. 
How do you know the culture, the world system actually hates you? Look to Christ. They crucified him, the Lord of glory. Christ chose them out of the world. And we're not trying to be hateful to others, but if you stand for truth, they won't hear it. As light would dispel darkness, so truth dispels error. Jesus would, or John, should I say, would remind us in his second, in first uh, epistle, chapter 2, he says, don't love the world, neither the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. That is of Satan. That is of the world and the world system. This is a call to not allow your affections to be shaped by the world system. You can't put your hope in the culture. You need to put it in Christ. That's where your hope is found. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't try to do things to stop the insanity of our culture. And they're really crimes against truth and Christ. Engage in all kinds of responsible practices, protests, letters, whatever promotes you to do those kinds of things, that's fine. But I tell you what, your hope is not in a political leader. It's in a person. His name is Jesus Christ. There may be some that, and we should pray that God would suppress the evil, and I do. But ultimately, it's not going to be in an organization. It's going to be in Christ. And he has gathered his church together to bring individuals to Christ and collectively as a church to worship him. Do all you can do to conform the culture to Christ, but recognize if there isn't something internal that changes, it isn't going to affect anything else. There is a fundamental divide that can only be crossed by the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, verse 32, he said these things, he says that you might have peace. In the world, recognize you're going to have tribulation, but, but take heart, <clears throat> I have overcome the world. It's a cause we sing to have our hope in Christ alone. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on what? Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Teach it to you, children. Teach them that on Christ the solid rock I stand, that all other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils its lovely face, I 
rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the overwhelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he is then my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is what? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. One of the benefits of the declining culture is the clarity it provides between truth and error, light and darkness. Our hope is from a biblical perspective. And by the way, this is a hope that is not wishful thinking. That's not how it's used in Scripture. It's not hope in what we want to occur. I hope a lot of things for you. I hope a lot of things for our country, our culture. But the hope we're talking about here is not that kind of hope. It is a hope that, that has been promised and will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He will rule forever and ever. And in his kingdom is peace forevermore. That's a great hope to look forward to because it is absolutely certain. The equation for peace, if you need it, brothers and sisters, is, is love. Know the love, the intimate love of the Father. Have faith personally in Jesus Christ our Lord. And may your hope be set on that glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. He said, I leave my peace with you, beloved. I give it to you. Not as the world gives to you, because they give you empty promises. He fulfills every one of his. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would grant your people great peace. We do pray for relief from tribulation, trouble, trial, whatever might come. Certainly do. But ultimately, regardless of whatever storm we may face, I pray that we will face it resolute in Christ our Lord. May our hearts and minds not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment to think on these very things. We'll take, give you a moment right now.
turn to 372 in our hymnal, 372. Am I a soldier of the cross? 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, Stand fast in the faith, be strong. Father, we're indeed thankful for this opportunity to gather together and to worship this, this morning. Father, we just pray for the, the uh, fellowship meal that we have following and the fellowship we can have around the table. Father, we pray that you would bless every, <clears throat> every morsel of the food to our bodies and the effort that was put into it. And Father, we pray that the God of peace who brought us again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, would equip each and every one of you with everything good to do his will and work in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.